This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, putting the Pentagon's money where its mouth is in its budget breakdown. And the Army's cutting-edge technology gets a makeover. It's Wednesday, August 24th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Deputy Secretary of Defense says the joint part of Joint All-Domain Command and Control needs some work. And the Defense Department solidifies its partnerships with academia. John Harper's managing editor of Defense Scoop and Brandy Vincent's reporter for Defense Scoop. Friends, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Brandy, I start with you. You're back. Uh, You must be jet lagged from your trip with the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks. She said on this trip, she kind of confirmed something that other people involved with JADC2 across the department have talked about. What's the significance of Secretary Hicks saying it? Welcome. Thank you so much, Francis. Yep, still recovering from what I would say is uh, a whirlwind of uh, four stops in two days, uh, four states trip. Um, What's new from Deputy um, Secretary Hicks is that um, she and uh, her boss, Secretary Lloyd Austin, are paying direct notice and, and, and thinking of as a priority getting more coordination around JADC2. So right now, all of the military components, Air, Sport, Air Force, Space Force, Navy, and Army are kind of leading their own initiatives. The Air Force and Space Force is developing the network that's going to underpin it. And then from there, um, the other forces have each of their own. But we've heard from um, the Army's sort of head of acquisition and and sort of other high level senior officials, this need for more coordination from the top and um, Deputy Secretary Hicks has essentially committed to uh, to kind of making that a priority and pushing for more coordination going forward. This is a a striking quote that you have in your piece. It's up at fedscoop.com. If you ask any two people what they think JADC2 is, you'll probably get different answers. That's that's striking to me coming from the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Brandy. You know, Francis, it, it is. But something that like really clicked for me on this trip is that while in D.C. and sort of from the Pentagon and, and from the Beltway, we have these big concepts like JADC2 that you hear all the time, these buzzwords that you hear all the time down in the operational level and, and at the bases the people who are working there, the officials and the service members who are really making this happen, they're not thinking about what they're doing as big JADC2. They're thinking about it as I'm connecting data in this way. They may not even realize that the data they're using is coming from this new chief digital and AI office that Hicks has helped found. And so if you do ask two people, you certainly, at least from my uh perspective, every time I ask people about JADC2, I get something different and you will. And and maybe that's a good thing because to each they have their own component that they're filling. But on the flip side of that, it's become very clear as you talk to more and more of each of those kind of different teams carrying it out that they do want more coordination from the top and to make sure that things they're doing are scaling. Um, and so, yeah, while it is maybe no two people can say the same thing. It it sounds like while that's good, there's also a push right now to kind of make sure that there is uh, some bigger collaboration and organization that OSD is pushing. Yeah, your reporting seems to indicate that the uh, the request, the cry for collaboration and coordination that people are asking for at the grassroots has made its way to the 
the top of the building. Another quote that I think is interesting, this is really a software-centric enterprise problem, Secretary Hicks told you, and our approach will look like that. Any more depth on what that approach could look like, or is that to be determined, Brandy? Francis, that's something uh, in the coming weeks I really want to dive and focus sort of more of my reporting on is this bigger picture cultural shift that's happening. We've heard for years now a push from hardware-centric to software-centric, but this is an example. JADC2 is an example of this happening. As the secretary or the deputy secretary went on to say, um, the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability Initiative, JWCC, that's going to be an infrastructure that enables JADC2 and these other big priorities. The CDAO, that new office I just mentioned, that's going to be sort of this central unit that's going to be kind of leading that cultural shift. So I think that 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 move from um, hardware to software focus is something to watch. And, and you have to think about what that really means and the implications of that. Hardware, you can see and you can touch. Software is a whole other beast, if you will. And so um, I think that that's going to be certainly something that I'll be watching going forward. And that reporting, of course, at fedscoop.com. John, welcome. Uh, two headlines recently that kind of uh, appear to be a thread to me uh, of yours. One is Pentagon issues new awards to universities to work on hypersonics technology. And the other, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab lands Pentagon RDT&E contract worth up to $10.6 billion. Is this an indication of a new trend, a new way of doing business at the Pentagon, or is it just a coincidence that these two stories happen to be coming out at the same time? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Well, certainly, um, you know, for a long time, the Defense Department has been working uh, with academia on various uh, R&D pursuits. But there is, I, I think, an increased emphasis uh, nowadays, uh, especially among uh, from Undersecretary of Defense uh, for Research and Engineering, Heidi Hsu, uh, and other elements uh, and other offices uh, at the Defense Department to reach out to more universities um, and other research centers to kind of expand that innovation base, uh, but also expand work with, uh, you know, existing partners on some of the things that they're doing. Um, you noted the uh, Johns Hopkins contract, you know, at $10.6 billion is obviously an extraordinary uh, amount of money for, uh, you know, one uh, institution to receive, you know, that work will be spread out over, you uh, a number of years, uh, assuming all the options are exercised. The initial contract is for 4.4 billion, um, but if all the options are exercised, it would be worth up to 10.6. But for Johns Hopkins, you know, this covers a a wide variety of research development, uh, tests and evaluation projects uh, across a number of areas, including strategic systems, submarine technology, space systems, uh, guided missiles, air and missile defense, information technology, just to list a few. Um, but, you know, not all of these contracts are huge, uh, you know, big ticket items for the Defense Department. Um, you know, they've also issued awards to uh, other organizations, you know, that are much less, some of them under a million dollars. But, uh, you know, as you noted, uh, you know, in the last few days, the Pentagon announced uh, a series of new contract awards uh, to different groups of universities and their research partners, specifically for hypersonics technology. Um, and, and, you know, that's a top uh, modernization priority for the Pentagon. You know, these awards would go to work on navigation systems, scramjets, 
velocity and altitude controls and capabilities for monitoring uh, the aero shells of these systems. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, another example of uh, not only outreach to academia uh, for, you know, projects small or large, um, but also, you know, there's uh, an effort to develop the future workforce. You know, they want to bring, uh, you know, students at some of these high tech universities kind of into the DOD ecosystem and build up that talent base. So it's both a short term effort to try to, you know, bring along new capabilities, but also, you know, looking at the long game and, and trying to, uh, uh, you know, boost the workforce that DOD relies, relies on. Uh, to develop new capabilities. That's an organization you report called the University Consortium for Applied Hypersonics. And uh, you write that that organization aims to, quote, deliver the innovation and workforce needed to advance modern hypersonic flight systems in support of national defense. What are the workforce skills that are necessary, particularly in the hypersonics field, John? Thanks. Well, obviously, um, you know, aeronautics uh, are, are a big challenge for that. These systems have to be uh, extremely survivable and uh, in, in operating in very extreme conditions. Um, so, you know, the advanced materials development, uh, you know, there are scramjet engines uh, that they're working on, uh, boost glide systems uh, to get these things up to hypersonic speeds. Um, you know, the aeroshells themselves, the, uh, the glide vehicles. Uh, so there are a ton of different components to this really complex technology. And obviously that's a specialized skill. You can't just pull someone in off the street and say, hey, you know, build us some hypersonics tech. Um, so DOD is definitely looking to uh, boost the workforce, not only for hypersonics, but a, a variety of systems, whether it's uh, you know, space technology, IT, um, you know, a whole slew of uh, new capabilities that they're looking for. John Harper, Brandy Vincent, thanks both very much. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other Defense Scoop stories at fedscoop.com. The Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering will assess the state of the supply chain of the 14 areas Heidi Shu lists as her highest priorities. Todd Harrison, Senior Vice President, Head of Research at Meta Aerospace. Todd, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. We've reviewed the 14 items on Heidi's list a number of times on this program. What's your sense of what the department might find as it digs into some of the these really high-profile, really necessary elements of national defense and war fighting in the 21st century? Well, you know, the first thing, and I think the department is already uh, acutely aware of this, but the, the main thing is, you know, DOD is heavily dependent on commercial investment, uh, private sector investment in all of these areas. Uh, and, you know, that's because, you know, it's not the 1950s and 1960s anymore. DOD is not the predominant funding source for, you know, research and development funding. Uh, it's coming from the private sector. Uh, and so, you know, that's good. That means that DOD can actually leverage a lot of private sector investment. They don't have to pay for everything themselves, but it can be a little, you know, disconcerting to the department because they don't necessarily have control or visibility into all of that. So I think that's one thing they've got to be very careful of is understanding where those dependencies are uh, and making sure that they're providing the right incentives 
for the private sector uh, to continue to invest in the areas that are important to DOD. Here's the issue with that, in my view. Um, uh, a former comptroller, a uh, USD comptroller, uh, who then, at the time that this conversation happened, went to industry and was leading a company in industry, said exactly what you just said. Um, the Pentagon needs to incentivize the right things. We're not going to invest if we're not sure or, or if we don't have some sense of what the return on investment will be. Todd, that conversation was 2008. And here we are in 2022 talking about the very same issue. Yeah. How did we get here and how do we get out of this rut? Yeah, so I'll tell you at a macro level, you know, I study budget trends all the time. And if you go back and you look at the uh, research, development, test, and evaluation part of the budget, the RDT and E title of the budget, and you look at it in each of the five year projections going back a decade, what you will see is that consistently, year after year, with only a couple of exceptions, DOD projects that RDT&E funding will rise in the year of the request, and then it will steadily decline over the out years, right? And so what they're communicating with that type of budget uh, to industry is, hey, we're going to give you some more investment uh, in R&D, and we're going to fund some of these, you know, pilot programs, prototypes, demonstrations, you know, technology development. Yeah, we'll fund you this year, but we're phasing out things. Uh, over time, right? And this budget request, the most recent request for you know PB23, uh, it is no exception. Uh, it shows that RDT&E funding uh, will rise in 23 and in 24, but then it will decline by a total of 8% uh, over the five-year period compared to where it is in 23. An 8% decline, and that's adjusting for inflation using the very optimistic inflation assumptions they put in this budget request, right? So it's actually going to feel like much more uh, of a reduction in buying power uh, over that time period. So, you know, what that's doing, uh, you know, at a macro level is communicating to industry that, hey, we don't think we have to sustain this investment. Uh, and at a, a, you know, a more granular level, if you look down at, you know, all the different funding lines and everything, uh, it shows that, you know, there are a lot of programs and projects uh, that don't have a complete funding plan that DOD is not communicating what they're actually committed to investing in future years. But they will come back in future requests and they keep adding more money in these things, but they're not showing that. So that creates uncertainty for industry. It's really easy to pick on Congress in situations like this because they are the appropriators and the authorizers. So I, I think it's probably fair in this moment to step back and, and look at what the requests were for the last five years that will take us through two administrations of two different parties and I think maybe give us a better idea of what the long-term trend looks like from the building's perspective and not from the hill's perspective what can you tell me about what that trend line looks like in the area you just described Todd yeah so I, I mean I think that's exactly where the problem is so Congress you know to you know you know, to, to, to just, you know, set the expectations. Congress only appropriates money one year at a time. Congress doesn't actually have a five-year plan. That's on the department, right, to have that five-year plan and that detailed plan. And that's where when you peel it back, uh, it is showing in aggregate 
that they are, are reducing, they are planning to reduce investments uh, in research and development over the five-year period consistently. I mean, if you go back, you look at, you know, uh, in the Trump administration, the budget request for 2019, uh, that shows a substantial reduction in RDT&E. Uh, you know, you look at the budget request for 2020, same thing. 2021 shows a significant reduction over the five-year period. 2022 is an exception because they didn't produce a fight up. Uh, that was the first budget request uh, of the new Biden administration. But in, you know, this le- recent request, uh, it is showing a declining RDTD budget over time. So, you know, it, it, they keep showing this and they keep communicating it uh, as if, hey, we're turning the corner and we're going to transition out of development, you know, into production. Uh, But that's not the reality of what we see happening. And Congress, to its credit, uh, basically ignores those declining projections and just keeps appropriating more money uh, for R&D than DOD is requesting. So what what has to happen to change minds? I mean, because it strikes me that's the challenge, that this is not a logistics or this, this is a long term strategy and and planning issue to get to your vision. It is. And, and I think, you know, ultimately, we've got to accept the fact that every budget is a constrained budget, right? When DOD is putting together its five-year plan, it is constrained at some top line. That might be a higher top line, might be a lower top line, but it's always constrained in every administration. And when they're, they're trying to fit within their five-year top line that they're getting from OMB, uh, they've got to make trade-offs in that budget. And there's so much, you know, what, what we like to think about is kind of mandatory funding, things that are uh, untouchable by DOD, funding for, you know, operation and maintenance and military personnel, things like that, uh, that they feel like they don't have a lot of flexibility in. Uh, that stuff, you know, get those bills get paid first, right? And then what's left over, uh, they can allocate for procurement and RDT and e uh, and I think we've got to change that mindset, right? And those things that we tend to think of as fixed and must pay bills, they're not really must pay. And maybe if innovation, uh, if you know the R and D side of the budget is a real priority, put that money in first uh, and show the growth that you really think that you're going to need over the next five years, and then find a way to pay for it uh, out of those other accounts. And it may mean that we have to make some reductions in force structure to be able to pay our, you know, our bills for innovation and for modernization. All right. When you say that, you know, that people's heads explode all over Washington. That's just the way it works. But as I, as I review this list of 14 things that Heidi Shue released in February, it's a pretty comprehensive list. Your area of expertise and your area of interest is prominent on this list, space technology, What's your sense of how that moves forward, given the fact that these are all important, all 14 of these are important, but I don't see anything else on this list, with the exception maybe of cyber, that's been broken out into its own domain to the extent that space technology now has its own domain and its its own service. Um, What's the future of this look like in your view? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at space funding, I mean, we hear a lot of talk about how, you know, they're going to, you know, double down on making our space systems more resilient. They're going to build new space capabilities. They're going to you know, do a better job of leveraging commercial space capabilities. I think that actually is a big part of the, you know, innovation strategy in space. 
But again, when you look at the Space Force's budget request for RDT&E, uh, it shows that you know it's going to go up a little bit more in 24 and then decline dramatically uh, in 25, 26, and 27. Right. So, what is that communicating? And if you dig down deeper in there, you know they're talking about leveraging commercial uh, space. Uh, where's funding for buying commercial space services, whether it's SATCOM or uh, intelligence gathering, uh, you know, imagery satellites, things like that. Where's the funding for leveraging commercial space systems uh, in this budget request? It's pretty hard to find. And for the most part, uh, the Space Force doesn't yet have a plan uh, and a funding wedge for how they're going to leverage those capabilities. So what that's signaling to industry is, hey, we're not yet, we haven't yet figured out what we're going to do here. Uh, we're not yet committed to it. Uh, we haven't, you know, taken the hard steps of allocating funding for it. Uh, so maybe hold off on investment. Todd Harrison, great to talk to you. Thanks very much for your insight today. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about the supply chain work Todd talked about in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Defense Scoop Podcast, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, Ann Newberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners for Defense Talks. It's September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the rest of the lineup and register through the link in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. The Army's weaving technology into almost all of its major weapons systems. Mark Kitts is Program Executive Officer for Intelligence, Electronic Warfare, and Sensors for the Army. At TechNet Cyber in Augusta, Georgia, he tells Defense Group's Mark Pomerlow what his portfolio includes. We do all the air survivability equipment for the rotary wing and fixed wing platforms. Um, and so uh, we do the IR detection, missile warning, and, uh, and defeat technologies. Um, but one of the interesting parts of that portfolio is it's electronic warfare. And so integrating how we do electronic warfare on the rotary platforms it should and could integrate directly into what we're doing for terrestrial air system, which I think you're familiar with, and our other EW portfolio. Um, so I think it's an exciting, sort of an exciting time for that portfolio with future vertical lift, and, and we've got a close partnership with General Rugen. Um, and so we do that out of, out of Huntsville. I also have all the biometrics portfolio, so all the collection devices and the um, uh, processing information. And, uh, we've worked very closely with the uh, with the whole community, you know, with FBI and uh, Homeland, uh, to integrate and cloud enable a lot of our biometric services. So um, that's one part of our portfolio. Uh, we do all the insured PNT, ground-based assured PNT. So a lot of uh, investments in um, uh, GPS resilience and uh, being able to operate, whether it's a ground combat platform, uh, whether it's a dismounted capability. And so I, you probably saw awards for uh, our MAPS capability. Well, actually, that award will be coming out here in the next um, three weeks, um, where we're going to be uh, developing and delivering Assure PNT uh, for all of our ground combat systems. Uh, and then a dismounted capability called, we call DAPS, um, which would be do all our dismounted capabilities. So integrate with NetWarrior, integrate with IVAS, uh, and deliver a sure PNT uh, in GPS denied environments. Um, and when you come out for Media Day, we'll show you adapts really small, really uh, interesting battery configuration. Um, we've been able to take, you know, really significant technology advancements to build GPS resilience uh, and do it in a, in a form factor that looks like a dagger. And mm -hmm. so I'm uh, really excited about that capability. Um, 
Uh, then we also uh, do all force protection systems, so aerostats, uh, unattended uh, um, uh, uh, ground sensors, essentially. Um, and, and that portfolio was very Afghanistan-focused, so uh, we've been um, supporting a lot of uh, Custom and Border Patrol, uh, Homeland, uh, and other areas to kind of keep that co core competency for the Army because uh, we're always going to be um, needing capability to deploy quickly uh, to protect our, our forces as we stand up uh, ad hoc infrastructure. Um, and so we're still doing that in CENTCOM, still doing that in, in Indo-PACOM, but uh, um, probably less demand for that capability over the last uh, two years. Um, uh, and then we do um, our sensors aerial, which is your guardrail capabilities, ARL, uh, EMARS, uh, and now moving towards this multi-domain sensor, multi-domain sensing system, MDSS, uh, and Hades, which is our first uh, prototype of a uh, business jet uh, uh, aerial ISR capability, and so an exciting time in that portfolio. Uh, and then I think lastly, I hope lastly, is our EW capabilities. Um, which is uh, terrestrial air system echelons above brigade, uh, terrestrial air systems for the brigade combat team, which is which is a, both our recent awards for us. Um, uh, we're going to in a competitive environment for EAB, and then BCT was awarded to um, uh, Lockheed to do a prototype here in the next uh, 12 months, or I should say, mature their current prototype and and deliver a capability in the next 12 months. Uh, and then uh, we also have our multifunctional electronic warfare air large. We have this long acronyms, but, uh, uh, which is a potted capability for both manned and unmanned uh, capabilities. So we're going through a test uh, period here over the next 12 months, so uh, looking forward to seeing how that capability performs. Um, and uh, well, I guess and in EWPMT we'll talk about, we we'll probably see that at Media Day as well, uh, a lot of demand, well, in order to deliver EW effects, in order to deliver these non-kinetic effects, you've got to be able to see yourself. Mm -hmm. And you also have to sandbox sort of, all right, what is this effect going to deliver? If I turn this jammer on, what does that mean for me? What does it mean for range? What does it mean how am I going to potentially impact the enemy? Um, same for GPS denied. If, if I'm going to enter into a GPS divide environment, what does that look like in spectrum? What does that look like on the terrain? Um, and so our EWPMT are planning. EW planning, manage, planning and management tool kind of gives us spectral situational understanding and a sandbox to kind of game out, you know, how would these effects uh, play out. And we see that as a core foundational infrastructure because, you know, one of the challenges for the Army is that, you know, we haven't deployed EW effects in a long time, right? So training and running through with soldiers and, 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 uh, and teams that they understand, okay, these are the effects that I could potentially deliver, and these are the effects that uh, uh, that will impact how I would operate, right? And I think that <clears throat> maybe recompete isn't the best word, but in, I guess increment one is sort of sunsetting, you know, with the current contractor, and I, I believe you guys are kind of like reevaluating what's next. Is that kind of where you guys are at with that right now? Well, I, I would say we've been successful with that contractor. We're deploying the capability now. Um, I think it's just a natural time to inject competition. Um, and I mean, yeah, what, what is involved in sort of the next, the next phase of that program? So the next phase will be focused mostly on NAVWAR, which is our resilience to, to GPS-denied environments. So um, uh, how will our systems and capabilities perform, um, model out, you know, what capabilities have a sure PNT on them that would be resilient, which do not, so I understand sort of um, what operations I can perform in that denied environment. 
um, and then understand um, sort of yourself in that in that NAVOR perspective, right? And and the other thing is, I think a stretch goal for that program is, okay, what is the adversary trying to do in PNT, right? Are they are they trying to spoof and, and steer us in a different direction? Are they just you know broadband jamming and, and, and trying to deny us GPS? You know, sort of give that situational understanding of, of uh, what the NAVOR situational understanding mm -hmm. would be. Now I know that PEOC 3T has a cyber program, but I believe didn't EWPMT at one point have some cyber modeling capability associated with it? Is that still part of it as well? I uh, know most of that has moved to cyber situation understanding. Okay, all right, yeah. got it. And and it becomes overwhelming for the analyst, right? Because you've got all these um, net ops and cyber tools collecting information. And then you're still looking at spectrum. So being able to focus sort of the roles and responsibilities, um, you know, alleviated some of that burden on those analysts. Okay. However, right, you've got to be able to share that information, mm -hmm. right? And and so being able to do that through CPCE or through our follow-on sort of da da data environments, that that's a, a clear focus area for John Ponce and I. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm curious what's going on with with MFU. I I think you guys got some procurement money added back into the budget. Um, you know, what are you do, looking to do with that procurement money, and, and where is that program headed after it was kind of zeroed out over the last year? Yeah, and so I think before we run to procurement, we've got to get through tests here, right? And so over the next 12 months with dot and and ATEC, we are uh, um, setting up an environment that will robustly test the pod, and so we can characterize and understand uh, what environments it could be effective in. Uh, I know General Rugen's really excited about it because it gives him a standoff capability to deliver corridors of effect. Um, and so that's something we looked at at Edge 22, uh, something we're going to continue to look at this year. Um, and then pending how that all pans out, we'll do a small quantity buy of MFU. Um, but we're so also- it might, it might not be just on a Gray Eagle. You're, are you thinking about putting it on other airframes as yeah, well? Yeah, so we'll be testing it on an RC-12. Um, we'll also be evaluating if a technology like that could go on a Hades-like platform. Um, and so we're-, we're we're in the evaluation of that, and we really want to characterize the system and understand. Um, and threats are very different, right? Go to Indo-PACOM versus CENTCOM versus um, what we're seeing in Ukraine. The threats look very different. How resilient is this capability to those um, diverse threat environments? That's what we really want to characterize over the next year. So is the are the units, because I know it was initially targeted for the, um, the cabs. Is that going to change as well? It might, yeah. It might. I think it's still sort of targeted for that environment. Um, but MDTF is really interested in it, um, and so, uh, and then we have the extended range Gray Eagles that with INSCOM. So I think uh, our, we're we're keeping an open mind as to what operations it could uh, potentially affect. Uh, and again, we haven't delivered EW effects, you know, from the air in a long time, and so we're trying to um, sort of uh, use this prototype, use this testing environment, so that we can learn about the capability. Uh, and then learn how the commanders can use it to their best uh, employment. So does that uh, increase the, the timeline to field it, I guess, based on, on previous um, documentation? The way the funding was laid out in the program because of the marks and because how the Army structured it, uh, the answer to that is no, because we, we're going to execute the money and, and that kind of lays out how the program will be over the testing timeline. Um, so, so we're sort of executing to that budget profile. But it also gives us this opportunity to characterize the system mm -hmm. uh, and, and for us to run experiments like at Edge uh, 22, like at PC 22. And, and so we'll be able to um, really understand sort of is it best on an RC-12 with an MDTF where they can get standoff uh, in, in, in Indo-PACOM on a platform they're going to fly anyway? Or is it a, a Gray Eagle with standoff in Europe? 
uh, these are all options that we're kind of we're kind of evaluating. Yeah, how does that integrate with other things like the air launched effects and other aerial EW capabilities that you mentioned before? Yeah, no, great question. So um, next year we'll have some uh, what we call tech maturity money uh, to look at electronic warfare effects in our air launched effects portfolio, uh, and we've got to be able to do cooperative electronic warfare. Um, you know, MFU is a 250-pound pod where we have sort of exquisite capability. Air launch effects is a much smaller uh, form factor. And so being able to get range and standoff with MFU is very different than stand-in and, and a very surgical capability with air launch effects. Um, and so we've got to be able to have sort of this collaborative, diverse portfolio of capability. Uh, and so we're targeting... Um, you know, some very specific threat capabilities and some very specific operations with uh, future vertical lift um, on the air launched effects portfolio. Okay, yeah, and I guess MVU also does a lot of ELINT too, which I don't think something like that would, would be in. Absolutely, you need to get standoff, right? And you need to have aperture size, some of the things that in that smaller form factor you just, you know, the physics won't, wouldn't necessarily allow. Mm -hmm. uh, however, you know, we're, we're seeing significant advancements in sort of software-defined small form factor capability that we're really excited about. And so, um, so 23 and 24, we'll be doing experimentation and prototyping on air-launched effects. Um, and we'll be going to experiments with MVU to do that collab collaborative electronic warfare. Yeah, I guess, have you tested before on other airframes that can go higher than a Great Eagle? And, and I mean, does that allow you know, when you get kind of higher with curvature of the earth, does it allow greater range extension? Because I know you guys are looking at potentially um, some higher altitude sensors yeah. and effectors. Could this be, could this help inform those or have you tested the CONOPS and TTPs for it at a higher altitude? Um, for electronic attack, I would say no, right? I, I think we're still in the uh, learning phase and still understanding what type of capability would be uh, effective at that altitude, especially Hades at, you know, 40, 45,000 feet is a, uh, um, you know, is, is a challenge for electronic attack. Uh, but for our detection and e-link capability, absolutely. Um, so big part of the Hades program two years ago is we awarded a contract to do sensor maturity and sensor development, and we awarded two contractors an e-link competition. Uh, and one of those contractors matured much more quickly than the other, uh, so we awarded a follow-on contract this summer to continue to mature that e-link technology, focused on, a large, on higher altitude. Um, and so so I, I think we're really excited that we're, we're making uh, um, significant investments in not just, you know, uh, uh, refactoring and, mo and moving sensors, you know, sort of in the stack. Uh, and we're delivering a capability really targeted towards that high altitude detection and getting, getting that standoff range um, from a platform like Hades. Yeah. You, is there, I guess, like a Army tactical and operational EW structure? I mean, I've seen kind of the OV1s for cyber, right, and how everything kind of has to... Uh, you know, tie back to sanctuary and all the cybercom requirements. Yeah. But is there a similar thing for EW and ELINT that you guys are looking at from kind of that high altitude sensing to sort of the terrestrial um, EA yeah, capability? Absolutely, and we'll we'll, uh, we'll make sure we get you something that uh, that. Um that kind of layers the EW is kind of what you're asking. Because I'd imagine yeah. they have to talk, like an a, a ELINT sensor for Hades would have to maybe be able to tip and cue, like absolutely. an e, like a MFU EA yeah, capability. And not just that, right? Um, we've got to be able to take joint service sensors, right? So when an RJ or, or a compass call or something like that's flying, we need to be able to tip and cue to get geolocation accuracy and other things, right? And so um, I, I think uh, being able to have sort of an environment 
um, and, and this kind of goes to our Titan program a little bit, but you know, having an environment where we can onboard and offboard sensors in the environment and leverage that to deliver um, uh, either accuracy for our shooters or situational awareness for our analysts is really uh, critical for um, not just the Titan program, but, but to understand sort of the environment. Um, we kind of, um, yeah, absolutely. And, and when you kind of look at electronic warfare as attack and sensing, it's, you know, there are different layers of electronic warfare in that, in that you know, are you trying to deliver effect? Are you trying to sense the environment? Uh, and then who are you delivering that information to? Uh, is kind of the architecture that we're focused on investing in and understanding how that um, sensor data will get to the end user in, a, in, a, in an effective way. Is that something that's still kind of emerging or ha is there yeah, kind of a... Uh, uh, so that's been our focus at Project Convergence over the last two is what does that architecture look like? If I'm sensing something in commercial, if I'm sensing something from a joint service, how do I get that information in a meaningful way to either a warfighter or to a shooter and 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 then make an assessment very quickly on what that what that excuse me, you know, what that uh, sensor is sensing, right? Um, and so in PC-22, uh, we're delivering um, uh, multiple prototypes to be able to sense either commercial space or uh, leveraging our high-altitude investments in Hades and others, and how do I uh, correlate that information and deliver it in an effective way? Yeah, I mean, what is, I mean, I guess you haven't finalized yet. I mean, what is a final, is it just like a CONOP or, or a TTP? I mean, how is that? You mean that's, final, that, that, that sensor architecture? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think our answer is, you know, we've got to deliver a Titan capability that, that in, ingests all that sensor data and delivers that effect in, in a meaningful way. So Titan will be kind of that linchpin for, for that as we, well. We see that as our core foundational capability. Um, there will certainly be other investments, but, um, but for the Army's sort of sensor-to-shooter, sensor-to-customer, right, not just sensor-to-shooter, but sensor-to uh, end-user, um, uh, that'll be our Titan program. Mark Kitts, the PEO for Intelligence, Electronic Warfare, and Sensors for the Army at TechNet Cyber with Defense Group's Mark Pomerlow. You can read more about his office in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. The Defense Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every week, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop Podcast returns next Wednesday. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.